Greetings, all you 99 percenters. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Okay, a number of topics here we want to talk about today. Uh, Just a brief further comment on uh, the most recent uh, Consumer Price Index uh, report this past week and uh, what it reflects and how it uh, ties into the Federal Reserve deciding they're not going to raise interest rates further. Uh, And then I want to talk about um, the past year of major settlements and strikes in uh, union negotiations over this past year. Okay. Kind of sum up. (coughs) We're talking about uh, a year that began about this time last year with the railroad workers, <clears throat> which wasn't a victory, thanks to uh, Biden and Pelosi intervening and threatening them, forcing them into a settlement. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and uh, and they up, of course, with uh, the recent auto workers strike and settlement, which was a victory. And in between that, uh, the Teamsters this past summer, uh, again, a victory. Uh, but the writers and uh, actors strike, uh, which wasn't a victory. And in between that, we have the Longshore Workers um, Settlement, uh, which definitely uh, has been a victory every time they negotiate. Uh, but um, let's talk about those. And from the perspective, can we say as a result of these negotiations of the past year, that um, concession bargaining, union concession bargaining has ended finally after 40 years. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Concession bargaining began in 1979 with a vengeance uh, with the uh, Chrysler auto strike, which was a complete defeat for the UAW, the Auto Workers Union. And that set in motion uh, pretty much the pattern uh, under neoliberalism, which roughly began about then, accelerated, of course, uh, under Ronald Reagan in the 80s, but continued. uh, uh, And neoliberalism, as we've talked about and I've written about, is is, uh, characterized by four policy areas, uh, fiscal policy, monetary policy, uh, trade and dollar currency policy, and of course, industrial policy. And the industrial policy of neoliberalism has been wage compression. And a big element of how to compress wages has been to let's undermine and destroy the unions. And that's been done in a number of ways, most notably starting in the 80s with offshoring of the jobs and manufacturing in particular. Okay, so I don't want to get into neoliberalism again. We've had shows on that. Just check them out. Uh, 
and uh, of course my uh, uh, 2020 book, um, The Scourge of Neoliberalism, uh, pretty much summarizes this whole evolution of neoliberal economic policies, uh, of which industrial policy is one, of which uh, uh, devastating, debilitating the unions is another, and that means concession bargaining. Okay, enough for that background. <clears throat> and we want to talk about these key settlements here over the past year. Do they uh, reflect the end of neoliberal industrial policy? Uh, at least that aspect of it where the target are, are the unions. Uh, we get a mixed picture, as we'll say here. But first, let's talk a little bit about the inflation uh, CPI, CPI numbers that have come out here recently. Uh, okay, this past week, uh, the CPI, um, pretty much more of the same for the last several months, meaning that uh, you've got a slow decline in uh, the inflation number I think it's at 4% in the recent, well, just about the same, maybe high three, high four, four, whatever in the CPI, Consumer Price Index, which is about 450 of the most frequently purchased goods. It makes up, uh, I don't know, 90% of the average budget of folks, CPI. Uh, urban, urban living in cities, not, not way out there in the boonies. Uh, so CPI uh, is really the best uh, indicator, index of inflation. You know, uh, there's another indicator that the Federal Reserve uses that's not really very accurate in terms of what people feel, the impact of inflation. Um, it, it has even more questionable methodologies in my view, and it comes out far less than the CPI. That's called the personal uh, consumption expenditures index, PCE index. That's what the Fed uses, and the Fed says, ah, oh, that's about 3.2 or whatever percent now. Uh, that's the one the Fed uses to uh, estimate its 2% goal, right? Uh, I don't think much of that index. I think even less of the third index, which is GDP deflator. That's the one that they use uh, to estimate real GDP. <clears throat> And keep in mind, the higher the actual inflation, the lower the real GDP. So if you have a GDP deflator index and it's super low, well, then that boosts your GDP number. You know, if you use the CPI that everyone else really feels, and there's even problems with that we'll talk about, then there would be no growth. There would be no GDP growth here. The economy would be flat, moving sideways. Okay, but they don't do that. They use a very low uh, G, uh, inflation index, a GDP deflator, which is even lower than the Fed's PCE uh, expenditures index, uh, which is lower than the CPI, uh, which doesn't catch all inflation anyway. Okay, so that's enough of all that. But just to put it in context, right, when you are read or hear reports, uh, oh, the Fed says inflation is 3%. Well, that's a different index than the people pay when they go out and buy stuff, which is the CPI. 
Okay, we'll talk about some of the reasons why the CPI is not really 4%. I think it's around 6%. Uh, but let's hold off on that briefly here <clears throat> and talk about the, the latest CPI, which came in all items, goods and services at around 4%, which is roughly what it's been for the last couple months. Now, the most important thing about these reports of the CPI the last few months is that inflation has come down because goods prices have come down. Goods meaning, you know, things you buy, manufactured goods, right? uh, clothing and, uh, and appliances and all these other things, <clears throat> cars, you know, homes, homes, no, no, price of homes is not in the CPI, we'll talk about why, uh, and, uh, you know, food, food, things, right, those are called non-durables, gasoline, that's non-durables, uh, utilities, that's non-durables, well, actually, utilities are services, uh, anyway, um, there's goods, durables and non-durables mean they last longer than a couple years or one year, and non-durables means you consume them right away. But these are all goods, and those prices have come down, mostly, primarily because of uh, energy prices have come down, gasoline and fuel, home heating fuel and stuff like that, right? <clears throat> Diesel, that, that has come down significantly. Now, that has come down significantly from the high uh, of about a year ago, because about a year ago, uh, the oil companies, the energy companies, you know, the Exxons and all those guys were price gouging the hell out of us. Right? They were using the excuse that, oh, there's global shortages uh, of oil uh, and crude oil prices were high. Why were they high? mostly because there were supply chain problems and uh, even more so because of uh, the Biden sanctions, which drove the cost of commodities, including oil, through the roof when sanctions were imposed uh, significantly on, uh, on Russia, affected the whole global price. So uh, what I'm saying is that uh, uh, this coming, this decline of uh, uh, oil and energy prices uh, which has occurred over the past year, has a lot to do with global factors, uh, not that much to do with the Fed raising interest rates. I mean, you don't buy gas on interest, right? You don't buy gas on interest. Well, maybe you do because you use credit cards, right? <laughs> so, okay, to some extent. But the credit card rates have been super high. They haven't changed that much simply because the Fed raises its, what it's called, its short-term policy rate. You know, which is that five and a half percent. It was virtually zero, right, when uh, we had the COVID re recession. Uh, and then starting uh, in uh, March of 22, the Fed uh, started raising interest rates. Okay. Uh, that hasn't dampened the purchases uh, of gas. Uh, I mean, people buying the same amount of gasoline, that's a function of people going to work and the economy opened up by... Uh, by uh, 21, summer 21. Uh, so, you know, raising interest rates isn't going to have any effect, any effect on gasoline prices. You know, now, if uh, 
credit card uh, rates were increasing than it might, but, but credit card rates have been pretty stable, very high, but pretty stable. Of course, uh, raising uh, interest rates does dampen certain certain markets, right? Uh, obviously, the housing market got dampened a lot. Uh, it, it also affects uh, autos to some extent, but the auto, auto companies tend to offset higher interest rates uh, by giving discounts of various kinds, okay? So the impact of high interest rates on, on car purchases is not as great as the impact on housing. <clears throat> uh, and those are the, the main impacts of higher interest rates. Uh, the point is higher interest rates don't have that much to do with the services sector, right? Uh, I mean, people are going to... Uh, uh, have inter entertainment, they're going to have medical services, they're going to have financial services and other kinds of services, uh, regardless of what the interest rates are, unless those rates are super high. And at 5.5%, they're not super high. So Fed raising interest rates does not dampen the services sector when those rates are only 5.5%. It does dampen the good sector. And the goods prices have come down, especially energy, but that's due to global slowdown of the global economy and other factors that are global. So the Fed is not that effective anymore in terms of dampening the economy. It can have some effect, but not that much effect. It affects consumers buying big ticket items, uh, you know, where they have to be financed, and it affects small business people who have to borrow. But the big corporations aren't affected by interest rates. They're fat with cash. Uh, they issue their bonds and other forms of debt. Uh, they can go anywhere in the world and buy other currency, borrow in other currencies, and then uh, uh, convert them to dollars if they want to invest in the U.S. But, you know, if they want to invest offshore, uh, they, they go elsewhere. Uh, so big corporations, which is, you know, the lion's share of the economy, are not affected by Fed interest rate hikes anymore. Uh, that's a big change in, in the character of 21st century capitalism in this country. Used to be raising and lowering interest rates, you know, would either stimulate or dampen the economy. Well, the, to the extent it can, it doesn't do very much, either stimulating or dampening. And we see this with services inflation. Services inflation have not, has not come down in, in the majority of services. If you look at the CPI last month and previous months, for the last six months or more, services inflation have been stuck between five and six percent. Not the three percent of the PCA or the four percent of the CPI all items. You know, it's uh, at least at least five and a half six percent. Go look at the uh, the monthly CPI, and you'll see this services inflation stuck. It's not coming down. They're not coming down. Goods prices are coming down. In many cases, they're stagnant. They're not coming. To, they are coming down, and that's and most of that is non-durable energy. But services like rents, no, 
not coming down very much. Rent is considered a service, right? Shelter is a service. Uh, medical services not coming down. Healthcare not coming down. In fact, rising. Healthcare services are rising. Insurances are rising, especially auto insurances, but other insurances are rising too. So, uh, you know, across the board, services are not budging. Now, the Fed has decided not to raise interest rates anymore. And uh, what happened? Well, this past week, uh, uh, Fed Chairman Powell came out and said, uh, well, we're probably going to have some two or three cuts next year in, in our interest rate, which is at about five and a half percent. Whoa, you know, the speculators and financial investors and stocks and bonds, whoa, they went wild. You know, they started throwing money at the stock market again and, and the bond market has gone up, right? When interest rates come down, bond prices go up. So you can make a, a capital gain, speculative profit, you know, by buying bonds now. Uh, and, of course, uh, uh, by... Uh, uh, buying stocks, and they did. A lot of money went back into the market, financial markets. A lot of people are going to make a lot of speculative profits now just because the Fed said, oh, it looks like we're going to lower rates next year. Well, the Fed has signaled, you know, it's not going to raise rates anymore, which means it's going to live with, it has decided to live with inflation in services of 5 to 6%. Figures, okay, you know, that's not too much. Well, you know, we'd like to get it down, and maybe over a couple years we'll get it down, but uh, we're not going to raise rates anymore. Because as I said many times, if they raise rates, you know, at the 6% and above, uh, you're going to have a renewed crisis in the regional banking sector. And also you're going to exacerbate uh, the coming uh, problems uh, with debt rollover in the commercial real estate market, you know, offices and malls and stuff like that, which has to roll over, refinance, in other words, one and a half trillion dollars in old junk debt next year, one and a half trillion. And if rates stay high, they're going to have a problem. Some of them are not going to be able to roll over. And some of those companies are going to go bankrupt. You know, in commercial real estate, <clears throat> owners of commercial real estate in the big cities, you know, the, the office buildings and such, uh, they're going to go bankrupt because they won't be able to roll it over. Um, now, if you raise rates, uh, more would go bankrupt faster. <laughs> uh, but uh, even keeping rates at, uh, you know, five and a half percent means some are going to uh, be in trouble. Well, that's why the Fed's probably going to lower rates next year to uh, minimize that impact, <clears throat> the financial impact on regional banks and commercial real estate, which are connected because it's regional banks that do most of the loaning to commercial real estate. Okay, so the Fed has decided that, well, we've gone as high as we can here with rates. Uh, pretty soon, if we do it anymore, it's going to really cause problems, you know, in our financial banking system here. Uh, so we, we're at our max, and I predicted they wouldn't go over 6% a long time ago for the past year for that reason, right? But that means the Fed's going to have to trade off by living with services inflation, you know, in the 5 to 6% range for the foreseeable immediate future. Okay, 
So the CPI reflects that. The CPI is stuck for services. But as we slip deeper into recession, which we are, goods prices will continue to go down. And the Fed's probably betting that the recession will will slowly pull down services prices too. Uh, what about that? Uh, you know, I had a show here a week or so ago on all this hype about soft landing, right? Well, we're going to have a soft landing. And that was pretty much stimulated by the third quarter GDP, which came in over 5%. But I had a show on this not long ago, and I said, look, look at that 5%. What, what's the composition of it? Mostly the biggest factor was business inventory buildup. That's considered investment. Business inventory. One third of the total 5.2 was inventory. In other words, producing things and keeping keeping them, uh, you know, um, in your inventory in the third quarter, you know, July to September, in anticipation of big consumer sales in the fourth quarter. Well, we haven't seen the big consumer sales, right? We had retail sales that just came out, and, uh, oh, you know, the hype, it's 4%. No, it's not. Because retail sales are not adjusted for inflation. The number they throw out there, when you adjust it for inflation, retail sales are flat. And that's the biggest component of consumer spending. It's flat. Okay, so uh, where's this big uh, boost to GDP? Where's the soft landing going to come from? Well, inventory is going to be cut dramatically because it's not being bought off by consumers. So inventory, the inventory statistic for the fourth quarter here is going to be negative. And you know what? Last month, it was negative. November was negative. Just came out. After this big run-up in third quarter, now it's crashing. And it's going to be negative. Okay, so we're going to see a significant flattening of GDP here in the fourth quarter. Significant. Uh, I predicted GDP will not, well, maybe one and a half percent, one, one and a half percent. And then the first quarter next year, I, uh, we're going to see a contraction. And you know, even mainstream economists are saying that. Okay. So uh, all this talk about soft landing may not be so soft. It may be really mushy. <laughs> yeah, you may not land on your feet. Your feet may actually sink into the ground, to use a metaphor, right? Going to be sticky here. And that's an election year. Whoa, watch out, Joe Biden. You know, you're already going to get blamed for losing Ukraine. You're already uh, people, you're splitting the... Uh, public opinion over your total agreement for genocide in Israel and Hamas, Israel-Hamas war, you know, 20,000 people already dead, 20,000, half of them kids. You know, it's heartbreaking to see some of these videos of these kids, little ones, you know. I mean, does Israel really have to do that? 
Right? They have to kill 20,000 and they're still doing it. They're, they're saying, uh, Israel's saying, this is going to go on for months, right? So we'll have 50,000 dead, you know, for 400 civilians who were killed by Hamas on October 7th. Yeah, it's 400. It's not 1,200. No, no. About a third of those 1,200 were Israeli police and uh, military, you know, who were overrun uh, when uh, Hamas, uh, uh, you know, forces uh, broke out of Gaza there. They were about 400, about a third of them. About a third were killed by indiscriminate fire by the Israelis themselves. You know, that rave in the desert? Well, clearly it's now come out that Israeli uh, um, helicopters, Apache helicopters provided by the U.S., uh, just indiscriminately strafed uh, that that whole uh, outdoor uh, gathering. And then uh, a lot of Israeli, local Israelis in the kibbutzes there uh, had taken refuge in their, in their homes, and uh, it's come out that the Israeli tanks just blew everything up, right? I mean, the fog of war, you know, you don't know who's the enemy, you're reacting, and you're just shooting whatever's out there. Okay, so maybe four or five hundred of Israeli, uh, I mean, that's a lot of people, right? That was a attack, um, but 20,000, 50,000 in exchange for that? No, that's not right, you know? Especially, uh, you know, there could have been some sort of a negotiation. Who knows? Who knows, right? But it's clear, you know, Israel, one more comment on this. Israel says that, uh, oh, they're going to uh, exterminate all of the Hamas fighters, 40,000 of them in, in Gaza. Right? They're going to exterminate them. Right. That's their objective. No, the objective, in my opinion, is really to drive the Palestinians out of Gaza altogether, to make it so uh, uncomfortable and impossible to live, because they pushed over two million people into a smaller, smaller area down in the south of Gaza, and there's only one way to, to end this, and that is for those people to go to other countries. And that's what's going to happen. And that means that the objective of Netanyahu, the PM there of Israel, right, is to take over Gaza. Yeah, land grab, land grab, you know, that whole ideology of Zionism is a really white settler uh, land grabbing ideology. That's what that is, right? At the same time, they're cleaning out more in the West Bank, right? They're going to grab all that land, too. They've grabbed about half of it already with the settlers, but they're going to grab the rest, you know. Uh, religion in, in politics and war is just, it's just devastating, right? And we see the extreme version of that in Israel. But whenever religion gets involved with, with politics and war, it, it's, it's destructive. I mean, that's why the founding fathers in this country understood separation of church and state. We've been creeping uh, away from that, okay? Um, but they saw it then, and uh, it's still true. Okay, enough enough of my commentary on that. Uh, but I don't think that it's just destruction of, uh, of Hamas. I think it's leveling that place and driving people out and taking it over. You know, there's a big conflict between apparently, reportedly, uh, between now growing, between Biden and Netanyahu, 
and Biden saying, don't don't destroy him at all. You know, be careful, be careful. At the same time, he says, no ceasefire. You know, he talks out about the size of his mouth. All right. <laughs> be careful, you know, because they know, the U.S. knows that that's the objective of Netanyahu uh, to uh, take over that land. And uh, the U.S. says uh, that uh, it, Israel should not run Gaza after the war ends and Netanyahu says go to hell we're going to do it <laughs> our objective is to run it means take it over right they'll rebuild Gaza but it, you know it'll be with the Israeli settlers okay all right enough enough of that let's get back to economics okay so uh, sum up latest CPI Service prices stuck at five to six percent. Durable goods, especially energy, driving down the total uh, CPI index to around four percent. Right, uh, goods will start contracting in a recession, so that will go down a little bit, dragging it down even further. But services, which is eighty percent of the economy, you see, manufacturing and construction is about twenty percent of GDP, and eighty percent is services. So eighty percent of the economy, you know, will continue to have inflation for some time in the four to six percent range. You can count on that, you know. So you better go ask your boss for at least a five percent increase next year in wages. <clears throat> That's what you're going to need. Well, just a comment here on this CPI, why the 4% or 6%, whatever, is really an underestimate. Even in the CPI, it's an underestimate of actual inflation. Well, why so? Well, here's a few reasons, just a few reasons. You know, you got to dig, dig into the weeds and understand the methodologies with these statistics, whether they're job statistics or price statistics or whatever, to really understand what's going on. Right? And uh, the CPI, which is the best of the three price indexes, is still underestimating of inflation. Why? Well, first of all, I think, as I said in passing recently, um, there's no home price increase in the CPI. No, there's no home price increase in CPI. Uh, nor mortgage increase. When rates go up, you pay more in your mortgage. That's not that's not in CPI. You know, our home prices themselves are not calculated in CPI. That's interesting, isn't it? No, I mean, that's a big big part of it, right? Well, you know how they estimate home prices? They have this phony thing called owner equivalent rent. In other words, homeowners rent to themselves, charge themselves a rent. And that's the proxy for home price increases. Yeah. I mean, it's just phony as hell. You know, owners paying themselves a rent, and it's a total arbitrary number that they suck up, right? That's in CPI, owner equivalent rent. Then there's real rent, real rent increases, uh, but real rent increases uh, are underestimated as well, because part of it uh, is lagged from months ago, part of the methodology, or you know, what actually occurred uh, six to nine months ago uh, is considered the current rent increase, 
right? And then you take the fact that you got 50 million renters. Not everyone's going to get a rent increase, right? Uh, but those who do get rent increases are going to get uh, 20, 30, 50, 100% rent increases. And then you average it out over all those who did get rent increases and you get what? 7%? Well, hell, if you had your rent increase, it's going to be a hell of a lot more than 7%, right? Well, you know, that's how they... Uh, they smooth it out. A lot of the price index stuff is smoothing. Uh, and smoothing means, you know, you, you sort of shake out by averaging or whatever, seasonality, whatever, the uh, uh, spikes that occur in price, whether spike up or spike down, you smooth it out. A lot of smoothing always going on. But that's the real people don't experience the smoothing, they experience the actual price, right? So, you know, housing prices, shelter prices uh, real, really are underestimated in the CPI. You know, here's another one that's questionable. Insurances. Auto insurances are on a tear. Auto insurance increases are on a tear. Uh, and uh, also health insurance is going up dramatically as it does at the end of the year always, right? Now, you would think Health insurance prices are part of the CPI. No, 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 no. You know how they estimate health insurance prices? They look at the health insurance companies. What are their retained earnings? Profits, right? And they extrapolate price from that. Well, that's pretty damn arbitrary, right? Especially since there are a lot of ways that insurance companies hide their profits. You know, they hide their profits, retained earnings is a form of profits, they hide it, and uh, you extrapolate prices from those hidden profits, or what's not hidden actually, right? And that's what you say is the increase in health insurances and auto insurances, the same, you know? That's very questionable. Another, another, another gimmick is what we call hedonic pricing. What's that? fancy word, hedonic, right? Uh, well, that's just lowering the price of a goods, because it's all associated with goods prices, uh, lowering the price of it, of the good, uh, based upon the quality increases assumed over the past year. A good example are your iPhones, your smartphones, your PCs, and even some of car price uh, are actually reduced in the CPI. You may be paying more for your iPhone, but the government says, no, you have a 15% cut in the price of your iPhone or your PC, right? your laptop, whatever. Oh yeah, it's down 15% in the CPI. Well, actually people don't experience the 15% cut, they're paying more, right? But that lowers the average of CPI because they have a price reduction going on and CPI for those items, those goods items. And as we said, remember, goods prices are coming down. Okay, so we got no housing prices, you know, uh, we've got extrapolation on insurance prices, uh, we got hedonic pricing, <laughs> assume product the productivity improvement, quality improvement, recorded as a reduction in prices, despite the increase in the actual market price. Hmm. Uh, there, there's other techniques too. I mean, any price increase has to have a base year estimate. 
And if I have a base year uh, that's during a good year when prices are high, well, then my subsequent years are going to be minimalized in terms of price hikes. But if I pick a base year during a recession, well, then prices are don't rise or even fall, so subsequent year inflation would be higher. Now, you would think that all the products, 450 products in the CPI would have the same base year, but not. There's all kind of different base years, assume, for different products, including, you know, the big items, all kinds of different base years. Right. Okay, I can go on and on and bore the hell out of everybody talking about methodologies and and price index, but the point is, you add all these up, and it means that even CPI, the highest price of all the three indicators, is itself underestimated. It's underestimated, and I say maybe, you know, as much as 2%. So the 4%, we're looking at is really 6%, and, you know, service prices are really, you know, 6 to 7%. All right, so that's uh, that's all I got to say on that. Now I want to talk about the settlements here, uh, the union settlements, right? Union contracts. Uh, you know, this whole cycle really began with the railroad worker strike last year, and the railroad worker strike. Well, it was a threat of a strike. They actually didn't walk out. It was a threat, and what happened was. Uh, what they really wanted, railroad workers, was to paid sick leave. That was the number one demand. Why was that number one demand? Uh, because they were being worked to death here under COVID. In <laughs> uh, under COVID, uh, the railroad companies reduced their labor force big time, thirty percent. Yeah, they were operating with a seventy percent labor force. Well, when you have that few labor, uh, what you're going to do is work to overtime, work the hell out of what you got to keep going. Right? And that's what they did. The companies, the railroad companies didn't put any money into uh, uh, maintenance and so forth. And we, we see and have seen, we'll continue to see trains falling off the tracks everywhere. You know, Palestine, Ohio being the most obvious thing. When the chemicals trains fall off, uh, you got a big problem. Uh, but um, you know they they're squeezing the hell out of their workforce, and the workers wanted some paid time off. Well, when you're only working seventy percent capacity, you you don't want people to take any time off, right? So the companies resisted intensely. They resisted the demands. Of the nine railroad unions, you see, in railroad, you got these craft unions. You know, you got a union for the engineers, you got a union for the mechanics, you got a union for the signal people, et cetera. You know, this goes back in the history of the union. And when you got craft unions like that, and there's nine of them in railroad, it's, it's easier for management to play one off against the other, you know? You settle with the weakest union, and then for the rest of them, you say, well, this is the pattern, right? They only got, uh, you know, the engineers only got uh, 2%. Well, the rest of you got to settle for 2% too. They play them one off against the other uh, very, very effectively. But 
you know, even this time, well, they settled with the, the company settled with a couple of them on easy terms, you know, or or what you can do if you're management, you can uh, go and give, uh, uh, you know, one union uh, a, a better deal. The skilled union, usually engineers, right, give them a deal to get a settlement and say, uh, you know, uh, we're going to continue working here if you guys uh, uh, strike because we got the locomotive engineers uh, on board here in the contract. Anyway, there's lots of tactics that can be used, management uses, to keep uh, the union split and divided. Um, and uh, it, it, of course, does this every negotiation. Uh, but the big reason why you don't get strikes in railroad is because of the law. The Railway Labor Act, created in 1926, which makes it almost impossible for railroad worker unions to strike. There's been very, very few strikes, usually wildcat-oriented here, uh, ever since, ever since the Railway Labor Act. You know, you do, you you got to give the the government notice, and the government's got to get involved, and there's a long cooling off period, and so so forth, right? And the government steps in. Well, what we saw was even that Railway Labor Act was not going to be sufficient because of the conditions and the desperate um, attitude of the workers. You know, we need more time off. You know, we're getting sick. We're getting injured. Um, we need paid sick leave. Well, it still didn't work. And it looked like the, a number of the unions were still going to go on strike you know, even for paid sick leave. Think about it. That was the number one issue. And railroad workers had no paid sick leave. I think they had one or two personal leave days that they could use for sick leave. <laughs> that was it. One or two days. Remember, this is in the middle of COVID, right? And they're all working still. One, one or two days off. They I think they were asking, well, at first they asked for 15 paid sick leave days, which is, you know, typical for... Uh, you know, major unions, you know, like in auto and so forth, they have 15 days, I think, or 12 days, whatever. It's you know, 12 to 15, 10 to 12, 15 are, is normal paid sick leave days during the year. Um, but they only had one or two, and they weren't really sick leave days. And they wanted 15 to start, but then they reduced it to 10, I think. Uh, and that was the, the big issue. And it looked like the companies weren't going to agree to it because the politicians during the negotiations were making all these signals that they were on the company side. The companies knew that the politicians, and I mean Democratic Party here, right, uh, would come down on their side because they were saying they would, and that just sort of froze up negotiations, made the employers even more adamant not to get paid sickly because they figured their political friends would intervene. And they did intervene. They did. Biden, the friend of labor, and Pelosi uh, quickly wrote language to impose even more penalties if the workers went on strike. Penalties like seizing their union, taking over the union, government taking over the union if they went on strike. And then there are other unions outside of railroad were concerned that, well, this anti-strike legislation, you know, the radical right wing there in Congress was going to make it apply to everybody. Well, come on, railroad unions, settle. 
other unions putting pressure on their brothers and sisters in rail. Yeah, uh, and Pelosi, uh, you know, bragged about, you know, we are not going to allow a railroad strike. Here's the, le the legislation was prepared, written. They were just ready for a vote. And, uh, of course, it collapsed. Well, that negotiation has to be considered a failure. Uh, that has not reversed the uh, long-term neoliberal industrial policy of keeping a lid on wages. Okay, uh, what about the next negotiation? Well, the next major negotiation was the Teamsters negotiation. This is totally different uh, negotiation. A new leadership, new leadership in uh, the Teamsters Union. This guy, Sean O'Brien, replaces uh, uh, prior Teamsters who were just leadership and doing whatever the government want wanted. And... Uh, you know, we get uh, a settlement here in the Teamsters Union. And by the way, the Teamsters, Sean O'Brien told the, the government, stay out. We don't need you, Joe Biden. <laughs> we, they saw what happened to railroad workers, you know. <clears throat> we don't need your, your help. Stay away. We don't even want to see you on the picket line, right? Okay. Uh, and the Teamsters contract uh, at UPS, right, 340,000 workers at UPS, the biggest bargaining unit in the Teamsters, uh, 340,000. Uh, the Teamsters pushed the company to a settlement, a pretty good one, pretty good settlement, uh, reversing the trend that had existed, not just in wages, not just in wages, but also Eliminating the two-tier wage structure, you see, that, that's a, a big marker of neoliberal wage policy. Encourage companies, and the companies went hog wild in, cre in creating a two-tier structure. In other words, new hires were, were kept on as only temps temporaries, right? And they had a lower wage structure. They were paid a lower intro wage. Uh, they had to wait longer to get wage progressions to the very top, right? Uh, and of course, temps weren't eligible for certain benefits and temps had a total, you know, probation period. Forget it. Your, your total period's probation period, right? Uh, and and the, generally, companies saved a potload of money by hiring temps, and part-timers and temp part-timers, right? Uh, whatever they they might have paid their regular full-time permanent employees, they saved and took away uh, by uh, hiring part-time and temps. That was the whole game, you see. So any wage increases uh, that uh, some of the workers got at UPS was offset by wage cuts for the rest. And as, uh, you know, people retired in the top regular tier, uh, they uh, would make up uh, by hiring, they, the companies make up by hiring uh, new people in, in the lower tier. So the two-tier wage structure and benefit structure is a, is a hallmark signature of, of concession bargaining, because a lot of that occurred, you know, after 1980, that was concession bargaining. And, you know, in autos and all, you know, that's a big harbor. And another indicator of concession bargaining was um, 
uh, lump sum payments. Instead of giving you a wage increase and increasing the wage structure, we'll give you a lump sum. You know, if you settle, you know, we'll give you a thousand, five thousand dollars, whatever, in lieu of an increase in your wage uh, structure and, and in lieu of uh, the wage progression, which was stretched out. You know, instead of three, four years, they made eight years to get to the top, you know, of seniority. Uh, so two-tier and uh, other other uh, clauses, you know, are an indicator. Another clause uh, uh, under concession bargaining is eliminating a true ben uh, benefit pensions, you know, union pensions, replacing them with 401k plans. That's another indicator. Uh uh, lump sum payments, as I said, two-tier wages, eliminating co any cost of living adjustment formula, you know, w which would be in addition to uh, your wage, uh, wage increase, right? Um, lots of lots of ways of uh, of cutting uh, cutting back, right? I mean, you got to understand a little of your history here. Uh, back in 1969-70-71 was the biggest strike wave in U.S. history, bigger than even 1946. Yeah, bigger in certain ways of measures, total days lost and so forth. Yeah, uh, the construction unions uh, began the whole process. They used to, construction unions used to, used to have regional contracts, not, you know, a little local here and there. Like in all of Northern California, it was one contract. You know, when you get these big pattern contracts, you got a lot of power. And all the construction trades were part of it, right? And the employers in construction tend to be weaker than uh, GM and Ford, whatever. <clears throat> so the construction unions pretty much had the power to get whatever they wanted, 69. And they did. Because we had inflation, you know, during the 60s and uh, – the union leadership did not want to strike and embarrass their Democrat friends, which is another big problem in the union movement. You know, deference to politicians, Democrat politicians, who don't want workers to strike because it embarrasses them. So they lean on the leadership of the unions. And if the union leadership is weak, you know, or values its relationship with Democrat politicians more than its own members, which happens, uh, then uh, you get these weak settlements, you know, and sometimes they're, uh, they're corrupted purposely, and then they blackmail them, and they can't, uh, they, they do whatever they want <clears throat> for the politicians and the employers. Okay, so uh, uh, construction unions had this big strike and big gains, uh, and uh, Teamsters who deliver the stuff to the building sites say, hey, you know, we we can do that too. <laughs> and uh, the big gains spilled over in 70, 71 to uh, Teamsters and then uh, spilled over uh, to uh, manufacturing because they also deliver the stuff to, you know, cars and so forth that have auto and steel factories and so forth. So you go from construction to uh, transport to, from transport to uh, manufacturing and big increases. How big? Think about this. 25% wage increases in the first year of a three-year contract. Plus, you know, 2 3% in the second and third year. Like 30%. 30 33% 30, 
increase in pay back then. Yeah. Well, the employers couldn't stop it. The unions were too strong because they had these nationwide or regional contracts, pattern bargaining, right? A national uh, over-the-road Teamster contract, you know, a, a, a national steel, an auto contract, a meatpacking contract, et cetera. So the employers, you know, with the help of the government, uh, said, we can't, uh, we can't handle this anymore. And what happened in 1971? Their buddy Richard Nixon froze wages. Yeah, right in the middle of this strike wave, he froze it. And then he rolled back the increases and said, okay, you can only have 5.5% of your 25%. That happened in August, 90-day wage freeze, followed by a pay board that held wages and major union contracts at 5.5%. And it was all about busting the unions because at the end of the decade of the 70s, the guys who ran Nixon's pay board admitted in a, uh, I think it was a Time or Newsweek uh, article that the whole idea was to zap labor. And that's what they said. They quoted zap labor, and we did. The whole idea. And they stopped the unions right in their tracks. And then they manufactured a strategy of how to break the unions after that. This was developed in the 70s, late 70s. Business reorganized itself into the Business Council and the Business Roundtable, right? Uh, and uh, the, what was the Business Council? 100 of the biggest corporation CEOs. And those corporate CEOs in the business council developed a parallel business roundtable lobbying force. And the two then proposed what became neoliberal industrial policy under Reagan. That was formulated in the late 70s by the business council, big business, corporations, capitalists, CEOs. You know, uh, foreign policy driven largely by uh, the Council of Foreign Relations, you know, where big capitalist uh, rule foreign policy. Uh, but the domestic policy, the, the analog parallel is the Business Council and Roundtable who determine domestic policy. You know, they write white papers and they go out and they lobby and so forth, uh, uh, Congress people and control campaign contributions and so forth. Efforts to to institute campaign contribution reform in the in the 70s were stopped in their tracks, right? <clears throat> and have gone nowhere for 40 years after that. Well, you know, what you got was neoliberal industrial policy. Yeah. Okay, so the Teamsters contract, let's quickly go through some of this here, running out of time. Uh, Teamsters contract, uh, a five-year deal, right? Uh, average wage uh, raised $10, over $10 over the five years, right? Uh, Part-time workers, wage increase uh, more than 40%. And part-time workers converted to full-time. Temp workers converted to full-time. They still have a lot of part-time uh, in, in the UPS, right? Um, and the top wage, uh, you know, at the top of your wage progression in the Teamsters Union now um, is over $100,000. Yeah. And the thing is, the COLA was kept, right, and improved. Uh, and uh, 
On top of that, the minimum wage for the bottom was raised to $23. Big improvements at, at the low end of the wage structure and elimination in, in stages of all this two-tier. So COLAs and two-tier um, really retained in the Teamsters contract or improved, right? The big indicator of concession bargaining creating two-tier was eliminated in the Teamsters contract. And steps were nonetheless eliminated. Uh, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Uh, so you got to say that the Teamsters contract, UPS, uh, reversed concession bargaining. But even more of a reversal uh, we see in the UAW contract recently. You know, the total Teamsters contract, I think it was like 30% uh, total pay increase uh, over five years. Uh, and uh, Longshore, also transport, West Coast Longshore, about 32%. And over five years. So, uh, you know, big wage gains, big wage gains. But more importantly, these these vestiges of concession bargaining were taken off the table. Finally, finally. Now, with the UAW, uh, they had made even more concessions in Teamsters over the years. They had given up their cost of living adjustment. A lot of temps, big percentage of temps and part time uh, brought into the auto auto plants and factories. Um, uh, a lot of their pensions uh, uh, were weakened uh, and uh, yeah, basically two-tier, a lot of two-tier um, and lump sum payments, right? Well, what do we get in this UAW contract, right? We have an elimination of the two-tier wage structure altogether. We have a reduction of the wage progression. It used to take eight years to get to the top wage level. And now it's, uh, I think, three years three years to get the top wage level, right? Uh, instead of uh, uh, top wage, uh, you know, around $20, it's like $32 now, $32. Uh, so wage increases of immediately 11%, plus 3% in each of the following three years and 5% in the fourth. It's a four and a half year contract, right? Uh, but you got a wage, total wage increase of about 28%. And when you add the restoration of the COLA, the cost of living adjustment, it's it's about 33% increase, right? So Teamsters, 30%, Longshore, 32%, auto workers, 33%, when you count COLA and the increased wage progression, or reduced wage progression. The top wage uh, increases by 30% over $40 an hour here uh, by the last year of the contract. And uh, for starting workers, uh, it's up 68% to $28. It used to be like uh, $18 an hour. You know, now it's 68%. Okay, so big gains and the end of two-tier and the end of concession bargaining and auto as well as Teamsters. But we got problems in other areas. And we'll talk about this next week. Artificial intelligence and what happened to the writers' union and the actors' union.